Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and the producer of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students from the course on refugees and forced migration here at the LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the lived experiences of refugees themselves. This is the first episode in our series, and it asks some fundamental questions around our understanding of forced migration. Who is a forced migrant? Who is a refugee? Where do they go? Where do they come from? And why do they move? For decades, social scientists have used inconsistent data to answer these questions. Today, two LSE alumni, Nicholas Sievers and Marcia Arango, are working to improve the data on migration at the International Organization for Migration's Global Migration Data Analysis Center to solve this problem. In this episode, they explore the role, the ethics, and impact of traditional and non-traditional data in the field of migration, with a particular focus on refugees and forced migrants. This episode is recorded by Sarah Phillips, a student in the International Migration and Public Policy Master's program, Sarah's worked with immigrants and refugees for the past 12 years as a native of Phoenix, Arizona, and as a graduate in cultural studies, languages, and history from Stanford University. Immigration has been a constant presence in Sarah's life. With her passion for documentary photography and innovative storytelling, Sarah hopes to continue working with forced migrants and refugees as a researcher, an artist, and an advocate after LSE. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, welcome to uh, this episode in our series on forced migration and refugees uh, for the International Development Podcast. Uh, I'm Sarah Phillips and I'm joined today by two very special guests. Um, the first is Niklas Sievers, who is a data innovation analyst at the IOM's uh, Global Migration Data Analysis Center. Um, and then our second guest is Marcia Rango, who is the data innovation and capacity building officer at the IOM's Global Migration Data Analysis Center. And we're very excited to have you both here today. Thanks for joining. And I'm gonna pass it over to you guys to introduce yourselves a bit more. Yeah, hi, uh, thanks for having me and us on this podcast. Um, it's a great pleasure. My name is Nicholas Sievers. I work as a data innovation analyst at IOM's Global Migration Data Analysis Center, short GIMDAC. Uh, where I am supporting Marcia as a, a coordinator of our data innovation team in building and developing um, new projects, uh, conducting our own analyses, and um, yeah, trying to figure out overall how and what the best ways are to harness new data sources for informing uh, migration policy and research. And hello, and thank you so much, uh, Sarah, for having us. It's great to be on this uh, podcast, the first edition, I understand. Uh, so yes, I'm Marta Rango, and I, I lead work on data innovation and data capacity building, which maybe we'll explain <laughs> in a second what we mean by capacity building and data innovation, at uh, also at GMDAC, based in Berlin. Uh, and I've been at GMDAC since the beginning of the, its operations back in 2015 when it was established um, uh, by IOM, and previously I was at the, the IOM Research Unit uh, in uh, Geneva at IOM headquarters, um, was a research assistant for the Refugee Studies Center, previous experience also in the private sector, uh, European Parliament, and, um, and yes, I'm also an LSE alumna, and 
class of 2013 in the Masters of Development Studies. So it's great to be back on this channel. Thanks again for having us. Amazing. So glad you guys could be here today. We're very excited to dive into a bit more on forced migration and refugees, as well as general migration and how it relates to collecting data. All right, so maybe to get started, thank you guys again for being here. Um, Niklas, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what the Global Migration Data Analysis Center, or GMDAC, is, kind of what's the mission, what are the main goals, and, and maybe some of the main challenges uh, that you guys try to address. Uh, yes, of course. Um, so migration is a very um, yeah, tricky policy field because many um, yeah, different interests are involved uh, on the national level, on the local level, on the global level. Um, multiple stakeholders are part of the equation. So there are um, yeah, a lot of challenges in trying to figure out a policy that fits all um, and uh, yeah, especially in face of the events that happened in 2014, 2015, policymakers and also academics realized more and more how the world misses information and data on um, different policy challenges surrounding migration. So the Global Migration Data Analysis Center, GIMDAC, was introduced as part of um, the, the IOM and headquarters, but supported by different political stakeholders in Germany. So uh, we uh, settled down in Berlin. And ever since, we are trying to, to push this mission um, to advance data and more information in the field of migration through multiple different projects. And the project or the team that Marz and I are working in is uh, data innovation. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about more data innovation in the next uh, questions. But this is kind of uh, this, this one channel that uh, we are currently advocating. And next to many other also uh, very important um, projects that we do at GymDeck with uh, our colleagues. Amazing. Um, you mentioned that there's multiple stakeholders, which is a huge challenge just in general and the field of migration because it does intersect with so many different areas. How does that affect kind of who, I guess, owns the data or, you know, who can access it and, and you know, that sort of deal, especially when it's kind of linked to more private data, who owns it in general? The migration data field is, is quite complicated as anyone who's ever, you know, worked on migration, written anything on migration and all the students of migration uh, would relate to this. It's very hard to navigate all the different data sources uh, that exist and that are out there, even publicly available data. So it's not only an issue of data not being out there and not being disseminated and, uh, and publicly available. Um, so there are various, you know, particularly on the international organization side, various international organizations producing different kinds of statistics on international migration. Sometimes they're based on national uh, data. Uh, so data collected by uh, and statistics produced by national statistical offices or ministries in different countries or regional economic commissions and organizations. Uh, and sometimes it's the international organizations themselves that uh, obviously produce uh, different kinds of, of data based on the work that they do. And that's also obviously the case uh, with IOM in particular, maybe at the, at the IOM's GMDAC, we also have uh, the Missing Migrants Project, which um, you might be familiar with and which tracks uh, migrant fatalities uh, across borders around the world. 
Uh, and so it's the only basically global source of information on um, this tragic uh, topic of migrant deaths during uh, migration, uh, but also other sources of data, maybe on governance and policies on migration, like the Migration Governance Indicators Project. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's also one of the reasons why, you know, one of the objectives of GMDAC was to really bring all this evidence together and facilitate access to information about migration, but also understanding of what lies behind the data. So when we see numbers, you know, 273 million migrants around the world, what does that mean? What is this number reflecting? Are we talking about people, you know, uh, moving? Are we talking about uh, migrants in these countries? How long have they been in these countries? Are international recommendations, you know, um, applied uh, in all these countries or are, est are the estimates based on, you know, all sorts of sophisticated analysis by international organizations. So we try to sort of explain all of that and all this information is on the migration data portal, um, which we launched uh, in 2018. But yes, and that tries to explain really all the different sources of data. Also, maybe to go back to your question uh, initially, so we have the national, national statistics, we have international uh, national statistics and so national data sources, particularly national population censuses, household surveys of different kinds of, uh, of topics and uh, also administrative data sources that are on administrative processes, right? In countries to either get a residence permit, get a visa, get a work permit in each country. And all of these are relevant to study migration, uh, obviously. And, um, and then the international data sources, and then there's this huge amount of data that we are only beginning uh, right, to, to, to uh, look at, uh, really, that is private data. And so data collected by companies and social media operators of applications, mobile phone operators, and all different sensors right, that exist out there, satellite uh, imagery, et cetera, that can also be used to understand migration, but, and there, there's an issue of access and there's an issue of really trying to understand how to use these different data sources, which are not specifically on migration and are collected by private actors for migration analysis. And that's, that's a bit what, uh, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to make sense of. So working on the traditional data sources side, pulling together existing data from other international sources to facilitate access to that, and then also trying to really open up this world of harnessing data, new data sources for migration analysis. Amazing. The work that you guys do is incredible, as I've, I've said many times, um, especially because it is hard to kind of find one source um, of data on all of the national statistics, as well as the international data that you guys are starting to work with more and more. Returning a bit to the, to the stakeholders idea that there are multiple stakeholders, how does that present kind of some roadblocks perhaps to trusting this kind of one center of data, all of these stats that you guys gather together and, and compile on migration? Are there issues with trusting your sources um, for stakeholders, especially in the policy field? Does that create a roadblock of any kind? Um, I think it's, it's a tricky question. Um, so there's probably no point where we can be 100% certain that all stakeholders are at some point going to trust our data, yes or not. But I think we can do our utmost best to deliver the data as transparent and um, as reliable and as accurate and as timely 
as possible so that we yeah, can help policymakers and decision makers um, to try to understand migration phenomena as good as possible. But we are, uh, we are one source. We are not claiming that we are the only source, um, but we are trying to, yeah, to do our best to deliver the data that's as good as possible. Which is great and obviously very needed in the field of migration. Maybe Marzio, you can talk to us a little bit more about the UN Secretary General has called for strengthening of evidence-based discourse on migration in particular. Um, and how does your data innovation working with more of these international kind of big data sources, as well as the national statistics, how does this strengthen the evidence-based discourse on migration when even the most basic facts, as you've pointed out, and I think one of your blog articles are particularly difficult <laughs> to, to nail down uh, and largely unknown in many countries. Absolutely, thanks very much. It's a great question, obviously, and it's, uh, it's very topical because, you know, obviously there has been a tendency in, not only in the migration field, but in, you know, several other topics, um, sort of steering away from actual facts and basic phenomena. And obviously migration lends itself very easily to this. It's very easily, you know, it's a very uh, sort of controversial uh, topic. It's very emotional in, in different ways uh, and feel very strongly about it sometimes. Um, and so it's even more important to make sure that, well, one, we, you know, we work on improving the data side of it. Um, and I always say, this is not the only, the only thing that we have to do, but it's fundamental. It's fundamental to get our facts straight, to make sure that, you know, again, we have a good understanding of the numbers, which are even difficult to understand sometimes for specialists on this topic. So working to improve the data, what does it mean? And that's also one area of uh, work, uh, here of work of GMDAC, which is working to uh, support countries around the world to produce better statistics on migration. Because, you know, it's also an, an issue of perhaps migration is not sometimes a key policy topic priority for, for countries around the world. They have other, other issues that are uh, you know, that take the priority at the national level. And it's costly to produce statistics. It's costly to run censuses and, and conduct surveys, specialized migration surveys, and really understand, you know, how to analyze and build systems to use, you know, all the data sources at the national level. So one part of the work is improving data and national statistics on migration so that we can, you know, start with the basic facts, which, you know, Right now, we don't even know how many people move around the world in one year. If you ask us this question, and you probably know, there's very few countries around the world that can give this information. Maybe some countries have this information, but don't disclose it necessarily. So it's hard to get a sense of, you know, migration flows around the world. And we start with that, not even getting into the details of how many of those are men and women and children, and what are their profiles and uh, in terms of education, and employment, and et cetera. So one is that, um, and then we need to really foster a better understanding of this data uh, among the general public, uh, you know, uh, having a more informed, really public debate about migration that involves a number of different actors. Obviously, you know, on the research side and the expert side, we need to get better at communicating this issue in an accessible way, really explaining uh, what we're talking about, putting figures in context, um, you know, and not trying sort of, you know, insisting on specific topics that are, uh, you know, everybody talks about and, you know, we 
portray migration in one specific way, like, you know, migration from Africa to Europe is all irregular and it's all dangerous and it's all, you know. So we have to put these figures in context. And then we also need to understand that data can only do so much. We're talking about a human phenomenon that touches and has touched everyone's family, everyone's life around the world, um, either, you know, historically right now or will do so. And so it's not only about data, but it's about connecting the data with, with human stories and uh, make sure that you know, people in the general public can empathize as well and can, can connect to these issues because there are issues that affect everyone, right? Uh, or may affect everyone. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's also a job of not just focusing on the data really on the evidence side, but communication and engaging also, um, you know, the human story side of it and narratives really around migration, which will be very important. Amazing, yeah, the connection between statistics and, and people because the statistics do represent real people is, is definitely something that in the policymaking field in particular, but other areas as well, where there's a bit of a disconnect. Um, and in the public debate too, public opinion, there's often a focus on the numbers alone, not really, as you said, understanding what they represent. Um, and so that's that's a great mission and, and journey to be on uh, in general and kind of building onto that point of making the human connection with the data you guys do have and that you're continuing to collect, especially on this kind of private public, you know, cell phone data, money transfer data to kind of have more innovative data sources uh, be a part of this conversation on migration. What sorts of insights do the data you collect offer that maybe we haven't had in the past because granted, you know, cell phones, while they seem normal and <laughs> pervasive for all of us, they are technically a new phenomenon when you think about the longevity of migration. So what sorts of insight do the data you collect and analyze offer on migration in general and on forced migration and, and refugee journeys as well? I mean, there are many things to say, but um, one of my uh, favorite recent uh, projects using new data sources was where we uh, were winning some new insights with using Twitter data. This was a project um, in collaboration with the University of Liverpool and the uh, Computing Center in Barcelona. Maybe a, a quick disclaimer before, it's important when we are using Twitter data that we're really only looking at a, at a really small population sample, which is not representative of the entire population. But uh, that's the same story with every other social media um, service as well. But we don't have to explain everything with one data source. So uh, we still think that it's important uh, to also explore this data source because it's still complementing um, what we know with things that we don't know yet, which is, although we're working with quantitative numbers, qualitative insights. So with using uh, Twitter data, we can, in a pretty detailed manner, observe and measure topics that came up um, and influenced the public sentiment towards migrants in a positive or in a, in a negative way. So one example, if I remember it correctly, it was in, in Germany. This was a project in five cases in Germany and Italy, Spain, the UK and the US. And in Germany, the discussion about uh, vulnerable migrants um, during a time period where uh, Moria was pretty big in the news 
had a big impact on the uh, public sentiment that we measured um, with the Twitter data. So if people would perceive migrants in a positive or in a negative way. And this perhaps is one example um, that can illustrate how data can really add to our conversation and especially uh, harnessing new data sources in complementation to the traditional data sources of surveys and administrative data and censuses. It's incredible how new social media is, but how much information people are just freely kind of putting out there that you can harness and look at and, and turn into either meaningful quantitative data, as you're saying, or qualitative insights or both. Talking about using those social media data, which I know is just one of the, the many kinds of new innovative sources that you guys are looking at, maybe more generally, is there kind of an ethical and responsible concern with using these new types of data and how you collect them and, and how people can access them later? You know, sort of, is there a, a do's and don'ts for how to use this new data? Yes, it's, it is. Uh, there are huge concerns and, and rightly so. And this is one of the things that we're actually planning to address and already trying to address uh, as part of this initiative that we launched in 2018 together with the European Commission Joint Research Center and the Governance Lab at New York University, uh, which is called Big Data for Migration Alliance. And uh, our mission uh, is to basically build partnerships across different sectors to harness new data sources, such as social media data, but also other sources of data from the private sector, uh, but also data innovation methodologies more generally, right? Artificial intelligence, machine learning, and new technologies to um, answer specific questions about migration, which are struggling to answer through traditional data sources that we have at the moment, or that we can fully understand because the data are not timely enough, and you know we can't be fast in, uh, in analyzing these data sources enough. And so as part of this initiative, really one of the, one of the areas that we're looking at uh, through other partners, the US, EU Fundamental Rights Agency, for instance, is how uh, to make sure that um, because we're talking about private data, because we're talking about information that uh, many users of mobile phones or you know, social media platforms disclose even many times without even knowing because of no, but none of us really read all the, you know, the privacy <laughs> policies and disclaimers, right? And then we just trust that this data will, will go somewhere and will stay, um, will stay private, but it's actually already being used, right, for commercial purposes. Um, but how can we make sure that, uh, you know, we do not miss the opportunity of using that information for specific public policy purposes when this could really help? To inform certain policies, and at the same time, how do we how we make sure that we do that in a way that doesn't harm the individuals that we're trying to assist and um, we're trying to protect, or migrants just uh, generally, even aside from systems and protection, but just facilitating right the safe, orderly, and regular migration, which is at the center of the global compact for uh, for migration. And so uh, obviously there are data privacy and data protection issues uh, with this. And there are already principles about that, right? And often the data are anonymized and they're aggregated. And we're talking about, you know, uh, sort of aggregating big numbers and it's, uh, it's impossible to identify individuals through one data source in particular. But then the concern is we use different data sources and we sort of triangulate them. Uh, there is a risk that we might identify also individuals. 
So how do we avoid that? Which is really a new topic. Uh, it's fairly recent, right? All of this movement about new data sources and how to use them for development and, and then now migration purposes is fairly new. So there's a lot of work to do in that area. But aside from the data protection issues, there's also the ethical side, which is um, even where fundamental rights are protected, how, um, how do we promote uh, an ethical and responsible use of data because uh, the policy purposes can differ, right? Interests of countries and states uh, in different at different moments in time can differ. And one thing is having data on irregular migrants in a country to make sure that you, you, know, you know how many people you have to regularize and give access to healthcare and education and work. And another is to have that data for exactly the opposite, which is restricting migration or the rights of people uh, that you, you're not tracking, right? Not tracking individually, but just understanding, right? I think we need to do a lot uh, of work in coming up with you know, certain principles, basic principles and basic frameworks for ethical and responsible use of data which in the humanitarian sphere is already quite advanced. We have colleagues also in another unit of IOM, displacement tracking matrix uh, that are part of an interagency group. Uh, and together with the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, actually, they came up with principles for responsible use of data in humanitarian settings. But outside of humanitarian settings, it's a little more hazy. Uh, it's a little more tricky. It's a little more difficult because, uh, because it really depends on the policy questions. And so I think the, the key point there would be being clear about the policy purposes and the questions that we're trying to address and the specific use cases for those type of, uh, types of data sources. And that will help not only access those data and incentivize the private sector to cooperate, but also make sure that we understand the ethical implications and we have a risk assessment of, uh, of the possible mis misuses of, of those data. It is a very tough question. And as you said, it is relatively new uh, in terms of figuring out, again, we never read those privacy terms and conditions before we sign on to something, right? So figuring out what you can and cannot use. And, and there's a certain risk, as you mentioned, with, I think, political actors in general, and, and maybe more specifically, as well as the general public in, in using the data ethically and responsibly, and maybe not misrepresenting certain statistics, or using it as means to have more restrictive measures. And so it is, it's a very tough question. And I'm curious as to, you touched on it lightly, but maybe we can dive in some more. And Martia, if you wanna hop back in on this, this would be great. Just to tell me more about how you specifically envision the data to be used. Um, again, I, I like to focus a lot on policy, but even beyond the policy realm, um, how do you incentivize people to not only trust this data and to say, okay, great, this is new, this is innovative, this is amazing but then also to use it in an ethical way when, when the guidelines are, are perhaps a little bit vague at this moment, given the newness of this data. Yes, so um, thanks so much for this follow-up question, Sarah. I think maybe what uh, we can clarify already is that some of these data are already publicly available, right? So what we've done so far is we've focused on data that we can access and analyze this data and try to understand what you know, potential for greater understanding of certain migration questions and phenomena this, this allows us to have. And so for instance, you know, Facebook has an advertising uh, platform. So uh, a public interface that advertisers of products or services can use 
to understand you know, what their potential audience would be, how big their potential audience would be, and to even target those messages to specific audiences, right? And there are certain variables there uh, that are uh, relevant to the migration question. So for instance, you, by selecting certain criteria, you, um, you can also select um, by whether people have changed their country of residence, right? Um, you don't know for how long those people have been in the country, but you sort of can identify through other country of nationality or, or home country and then change of usual residence, the migrant population in the country. You can restrict it by nationality as well. And if you get a number that is higher than 1,000 in a country, you have a pretty uh, sort of pretty, well, accurate uh, depending on the, on the country, obviously, because there's some biases, but a pretty good idea of the number of, for instance, international migrants in, in different countries. And obviously, you know, this works well where Facebook penetration rates are higher. It, it works better for population at, in younger age groups than in older age groups, usually uh, countries around the world. And it works well right now in some countries, but it might not work well in the future. For instance, in, in this case, we, you know, recently we did this analysis with the partners of the Big Data for Migration Alliance, and we noticed the increase in the number of Venezuelan migrants and refugees in Spain before they appeared in the national statistics, because there's obviously a lag between the, the time that the data are collected and analyzed at the national level and they're, and they're disseminated, right? Um, and this, uh, obviously, I think it's a matter of experimentation, trying to understand in which cases do these data sources really help us you know, provide these more timely pictures of migration uh, compared to traditional sources and how reliable are, are these data or if there is a bias and there is um, based on penetration rates or, you know, um, differentials in access to these platforms or use, et cetera, then how do we address the bias? And I think there's a, you know, there's a huge chunk of work now going into that. And this is obviously, you know, work that is done in partnerships with many different actors, particularly on the academic side, but not only. Uh, and the same, you know, with the Twitter study that Nicholas was mentioning, it's also data that is not exactly public, although now Twitter has opened up uh, more data for research purposes, uh, but that can be easily uh, purchased and, and analyzed. And then the other work that we're doing is really facilitating partnerships with the private sector for data that is not uh, publicly available. What we're, we're currently trying to do is bringing together policymakers at the national level private sector representatives, data experts, and facilitate the discussion around public-private partnerships, uh, right? And, that, and that's why you know, we're trying to focus right now on specific questions like estimating uh, flows within West Africa, for instance. That's, you know, uh, trying to understand what happens within these regions. We know that migration, you know, within West Africa is a lot more significant than migration from uh, from Africa to Europe or from West Africa to Europe, but we can't really quantify it, right? So, uh, so that's, that's something that has to be done. It's a discussion needs to be had, had in every context, be it the local level, you know, the national level, regional, et cetera, and for different questions. And, you know, we can provide some general guidance and, uh, and frameworks and facilitate the, um, sort of these discussions, but it needs to be specific to the context and to the policy questions in each um, in each uh, country or uh, in each reality. Context is incredibly important and often I think overlooked when addressing these problems. Everybody seems to want a, a shorter term Band-Aid fix, something that's kind of a one size fits all uh, experience uh, to solve the ongoing migration crises. 
around the world. In the EU, in particular, the refugee crisis, part of this is the lack of burden sharing, the inability to effectively share the population of refugees throughout the European Union in a meaningful way. So I'm curious if you have some insights or ideas about how you see this new innovative kind of big data movement and innovative methodologies fitting in to address this need in the EU context um, for more effective refugee burden sharing? <laughs> Small question. <laughs> okay, that's the million euro question. Um, yeah, that many professors and other professionals have been thinking about since Dublin One uh, started to be created in the mid 80s. So I'm not sure if I can come up with a answer here, but what I think data innovation can do to contribute to solving this challenge is to increase the feeling of security in the general public towards policymakers while they are developing migration policy. Because I think one of the key challenges um, in, in uh, responsibility sharing is um, political willingness. People or states um, want different things and it's difficult, especially in the EU, to find consensus because uh, consensus is uh, what the EU wants. Uh, rightfully so. Um, and political willingness for some things is increased if voters are in favor. And I personally believe that voters are more in favor towards things where they feel secure and where they trust that policymakers can handle it. And what data innovation can do is to provide um, more knowledge and with more knowledge and with more information and with more insights, policies can be uh, more informed. And ultimately, and this will be my hope, that this also um, conveys to the feeling of trust and security of the general public so that their votes shift and political willingness will shift. And ultimately, in yeah, five to 10 years from now, which uh, in political terms still is a very, very short time, something uh, can be worked out there. But yeah, I think the, the Dublin regulation is one of the uh, most challenging political topics in uh, EU migration policy making. So, and data innovation alone, of course, uh, I don't think will uh, deliver the answer there. But maybe we can contribute a little part to, to helping to figure this out. Definitely political willingness, um, public opinion in general tends to uh, be feel insecure towards increased immigration. And so working on getting a public to feel more secure, I think definitely is one of the, the many keys needed to, to turn the tide um, to better burden sharing, um, which I would prefer to call opportunity sharing. Um, but that's another story, right? <laughs> On this kind of theme of, of security, I think that security has become kind of increasingly important in the COVID-19 era, um, in particular uh, related to migration. People are more and more concerned that people who are moving around the world, traveling, whether they're permanently migrating, forcibly displaced or otherwise, 
there's a concern that they're bringing along more variants of this virus or, or causing the spread to increase. I'm curious, Marcia, if you have any thoughts about how COVID-19 may have affected what data you guys are looking to gather or how it's affected migration just in more general terms. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I think obviously, I mean, there's uh, there's a huge impact, which we're just beginning to understand uh, in terms of you know, the impact of uh, of COVID-19, particularly, I think, on, you know, very socioeconomic uh, phenomena, including migration, more than the impact of migration on COVID-19. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you're familiar also with recent research by the Center for Global Development on evidence from, you know, the pandemic and actually whether migration increases sort of the spread uh, of the pandemic around the world and it's actually not a big difference it's something that will happen regardless of migration and obviously you know mobility accelerates but doesn't uh, doesn't uh, mean the difference between you know uh, the this uh, the spread of the disease becoming a pandemic or not right so we also have to sort of uh, um, understand and maybe uh, sort of combat these myths that, you know, movement is the causes of all ills, including, you know, the spread of pandemics. But certainly there's something that, um, you know, that can be done, uh, you know, a lot of efforts, I think, in within Europe, but also elsewhere in trying to anticipate and understand how people move so that we can uh, understand sort of the spread uh, of the pandemic and or how uh, social mobility restrictions are affecting also uh, people's mobility. Uh, it's more internally, but also, you know, within the, uh, at the EU level, our colleagues at the Joint Research Centre have done um, analysis of this kind. And, you know, it's, uh, it's obviously, it's, it's something that we are, are looking at. I think the significance of the pandemic for particularly the work that we're doing is that COVID-19 is uh, making and has made the collection of data through traditional sources more difficult. And so it has sort of strengthened the case for using alternative data sources, right? And this has been also clear in, uh, in attempts to control the spread of the pandemic, even at the national level, using mobile phone data, using mobile phones to, right, um, to track also um, the spread of the pandemic, but also for other, uh, other phenomena, like a lot of the countries around the world that have had to postpone, for instance, there's national population censuses last year because of, uh, because of the pandemic. So in that sense, it's also affecting, I think, a lot of the statistical activities around the world, which um, is making our work even on, on data innovation even more um, important at this time. It is, for sure. And, and the delaying of, of censuses may continue depending on how long this pandemic continues. So to wrap up, this is a question to both of you, but I'll pass it to Miklos first. I'm curious if there's something that you're like, you know, when I started IMPP, this was a big problem. It hasn't been fixed. And I'm really hoping that data innovation will take us further towards a solution. It is a very big question. I guess it's, it um, also is asking for a somewhat philosophical answer. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> So I personally think that many problems can be solved with uh, communication and exchange. So most conflicts that happen if in between two people or in between two cultures or in between two countries are problems because um, the communication doesn't work, because there is no 
fluid way of exchanging ideas and thoughts. So I think migration is such a controversial topic uh, because of this lack of exchange. Um, so people uh, who are a bit wary towards the idea of having rather more than less migration globally, nationally, regionally, um, from, from my uh, experience, don't have so much experience with migrants themselves or with, with international experience. So this is a little bit the view where I come from, because then I think, okay, if we can provide just more information, if we can, uh, with data, qualitatively, quantitatively, uh, but also communicating the data, communicating the insights, if we can provide a better picture for everybody, what migration actually means, so also what people behind the numbers are, I think that this can help a lot to facilitate the exchange of ideas and the communication process beyond borders. Um, and I think that data in general can uh, help that and data innovation also, since it's tapping into the potential of uh, an abundance of data that isn't yet used for the common good. So Marcy, a kind of same sort of question to you about a challenge or the challenges you see and how data innovation will help move us towards a solution. Well, I think, you know, one of the main uh, challenges that we face is um, you know, we keep talking about this evidence-based policies, informed policies, using data for policy, but what does this actually mean, right? And I think a big, a big challenge ahead of us is, first of all, understanding, you know, how to better use data for policy decisions or programs on migration, uh, understanding the importance of it, the impact it can have on individual lives, be it migrants, be it the communities that, uh, where migrants live and, and work and, and participate. Um, because I think, and this is you know, not something unique to data innovation. I think you know, data innovation is a tool and uh, it's a challenge that's common to using traditional data, census data, administrative data, as it is to data innovation because it, it's a tool in the end to better understand the phenomenon so that we can you know uh, we can hope to make better decisions and forward-looking decisions based on knowledge and facts and less on whether you know the political sort of uh, will is there or you know what party is in power or what that's going to mean in terms of votes at the next elections right so I think that's a, that's a huge challenge and, uh, and really, you know, going back to also the, the culture of, of knowledge and, uh, and promoting a bit the democratization of this knowledge, be it from new data sources uh, or not. Uh, and another, um, another challenge that we face, particularly I think in the migration, you know, policy research um, area, we need, we need a different narrative about migration. You know, you mentioned that when we talk about refugee burden sharing, what is burden? What is it? We're talking about human beings that, you know, have their background, their stories, their culture, and they can enrich uh, and contribute to the countries that they're, uh, that are lucky to host them or, uh, you know, uh, that they're lucky to, to, to be part of. And that's, uh, that's just one thing, but, you know, I've been thinking about all the 
terminology and the terms that we use on migration that we really need, you know, we really need to change. Even on statistics, like flows, you know, we have this like flows of migrants and we use them automatically because that's the statistical term, but it's horrible to refer to people moving around the world as flows of people, uh, you know. And I think it's, you know, obviously terminology is but a little part of it, but we really need to, uh, to shift gears. We need to renew the way, the way we talk about migration, the way we address migration, the questions that we ask about, about migration. And I think that's, you know, obviously a collective effort and uh, it takes communication, it takes partnerships, and Nico was saying it takes work on, on various sides. But I hope that the next generation of, uh, of LSE students in the forest of migration and refugee course will help to address these challenges. Absolutely. I think that changing the narrative and, and the language we use, to me, Klaus's point as well, is super important in how we communicate these ideas because words matter. They always do. And so that's a huge part and, and as well um, for understanding the impact that policies have because they impact real people. Um, they're not just changing numbers on a piece of paper. They're impacting real people. The, the future, I think, is looking brighter and brighter as we start to gather more of this innovative data and, and more data in general to get that clearer picture about what are the real problems that not only we see as, as maybe non-forced migrants or refugees or, or non-immigrants, um, but what are the issues that the data tell us and what are the issues that the migrants themselves see they need to have resolved. And so I think that's also a, a big part of the conversation. And, and I think we're all moving in that direction. And it's great to, to have this sort of data source uh, from you guys that kind of collects so many different private and public data sources together for people to look at. That's the time we have. So thank you guys so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And we look forward to the next episode on this series about forced migration and refugees. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.